This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio and the audiobook version of Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. Bloomsbury Girls is a compelling story of post-war London, a century-old bookstore, and three women determined to find their way in a fast-changing world. Grace must work to support her family following her husband's breakdown in the aftermath of the war, but she is torn between duty to her family and dreams of her own. Brilliant and stylish Vivian has a long list of grievances, the biggest of which is Alec McDonough, the head of fiction. And ambitious Evie was denied an academic position in favor of her less accomplished male rival, and the bookstore is where she plots revenge. Vivian, Grace, and Evie and their complex web of relationships, goals, and dreams are planning a future that is richer and more rewarding than anything society will allow. Award-winning actor Juliette Stevenson narrates this heartwarming audiobook from the internationally best-selling author of the Jane Austen Society. Get Bloomsbury Girls on Audible, Libro FM, or wherever you get audiobooks today. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On today's episode of Complicated Conversations, we are joined by Katie Gutierrez, the author of the debut novel, More Than You'll Ever Know. She has an MFA from Texas State University, and her writing has appeared in Time, Harper's Bazaar, The Washington Post, Long Reads, and more. She lives in San Antonio, Texas with her husband and their two children. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about More Than You'll Ever Know? It's about Lore Rivera, who's a South Texas woman who is secretly married to two men at the same time in the 1980s, and Cassie Bowman, who is an aspiring true crime writer in 2017 who becomes obsessed with telling her story. Um, and it's kind of an examination of marriage, motherhood, female agency, and ambition, and also sort of how little decisions become big ones and the secrets that we keep from those we love. Oh, we love all of those Very things. good. You just- <laughs> usually said it a few times. <laughs> yes, you have. It was very well done, but also hits on so many things that we love. One of which, of course, is complicated women, um, mm-hmm. which is a focus of the podcast. So we want to start with Cassie. She, mm-hmm. as you said, is a true crime writer, engaged to Wholesome Duke, but with a dark past of her own. Mm-hmm. So we'd love to hear more about Cassie, what inspired you, Uh, Any challenges you faced when writing her? Yeah, Cassie was actually the more difficult of the two women to write, believe it or not. Um, Lore sort of came to me very whole. Her voice was very clear throughout. Sometimes I would fall asleep and and I would be hearing her voice in my head and I would just think like, gosh, there is such a fine line between being a writer and, you know, and something else going on. But, (laughs) But Cassie was more challenging to get her perspective. Um, I started writing her in the third person and I felt like it was, even though it worked for Lore, for some reason it didn't work for Cassie. It was too distant. And I ended up having to um, like rewrite 150 pages into first person to try to get more at her voice, her interiority, get at, you know, 
I think, a deeper intimacy of perspective with her. And then structurally, the book changed a lot in terms of switching between the two women. But um, I was with Cassie, I was really interested in exploring, well, first of all, our general cultural obsession with true crime and kind of its moral pitfalls and ambiguities. But also the idea of how even if you want to try to do it right the way Cassie does, she wants to get away from this sort of dead white woman trope in true crime. But she's still coming at it with, like you said, her her past, that that in combination with the way she consumes true crime still kind of, you know, leads her towards seeing women as victims. And that can kind of shade her perspective on Lore's story at different times. And it's also, you know, I think with Cassie having that darker family past, I think she and Lore become sort of mirrors and foils for each other at different times when it comes to, you know, the secret keeping and and when and, and to whom those secrets are revealed. I love when writers can actually pinpoint the challenges. I mean, that sometimes it's a challenge to even say like where it came from or what inspired you, mm-hmm. just kind of because when you put the whole thing in perspective, right, it's hard to see. It's like falling in love. It's like, well, when did you fall in love? I don't know. I remember this time and I remember that time, but yes. when was it really? Um, and forget about trying to figure out when you fall out of love, how much that <laughs> Ooh, is, yes. right? That's so true. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty brilliant comparison. Yeah. So Cassie is really enticed by this story. And I could see that could be part of your way in using the first person and just going like, I still want to be looking at this person, Lore. So she's the other point of view character. She marries Andres Russo in Mexico City, even though she's already married to Fabian Rivera in Laredo, Texas with twin sons. She's an international banker who splits her time between two countries and two men. And Cassie specifically wonders at one point why a woman who seemed to have it all would would want to lead a double life. So we want to hear, and I was, I mean, I was taken immediately. What a fascinating story to think about, to unpack, to kind of get into, We, which we love to do on this podcast anyway, to kind of get into the psychology of, of mm-hmm. what's going on there. And, and there's never even one answer. Again, the idea of like being able to pinpoint something as your part mm-hmm. of fascination is, is impossible to do. But so tell us more about writing Lori's point of view and any challenges you found her. It sounds like she came to you much easier. Do you remember the inspiration or where that started? Yeah, I do. It was actually years back in probably 2011, I'm guessing, where I read a double life story. And it was about a man who had... Um, He had a wife of 53 years and three grown kids. And um, when his wife died, very suddenly he married this other woman two weeks later. And everybody was like, well, where did she come from? And it turned out he'd been living 20 miles down the street with this other woman. He'd fathered two kids with her over the previous, I think, 30 years. So he'd been, you know, and so the two lives were so um, close in proximity. Like the kids went to the same kind of elite school at different times. The two women actually served on the school board at the same time. Um, but he used a different name with both women. And I, I was so like repulsed and fascinated by that story. You know, the idea of, of how long, you know, the longevity of that kind of deception, um, and what it would take, you know, psychologically to both get into it and to pull it off over that many years and how to justify it to yourself. And, but what I was really taken by once I started sort of digging deeper into, you know, the secret family stories was that they were all men, you know, which, you know, Cassie finds out in the book. And so I was really interested in the idea of kind of like flipping it and exploring what it would take for a woman to live that kind of double life, what her emotional landscape would look like, 
I'm actually working on, on a piece right now about like romance scams um, oh, and secret um, lives. And there's sort of, there's a line between the two because obviously with romance scams, generally there's some kind of like financial end game. And with a secret life, it's much more of an emotional deception. You know, there's no, yeah. you know, this guy who lived for 30 years with two women, like he was rich. He wasn't looking for anything from the women. He just had these two families. And so I was really interested in kind of taking this idea of the fact that we all compartmentalize ourselves in different ways. We all present different versions of ourselves to different people. But what would it take to do that in this really extreme way? What would bring you to that place and how would you actually pull it off? And so that was sort of like the seed of the idea way back then. And I was working on something else at the time um, for my program, a collection of short stories. And this just felt bigger than that. And it didn't seem to sort of fit with the voice of that collection. And so it was just in the back of my mind for many years. And then in 2017, I started, well, 2017, we actually went on submission with another book, my technical first book, which didn't sell. And when it didn't sell, my agent said, you know, well, you know, do you have any other ideas, anything else you, you know, want to start working on? And, and this was the first one to come to mind. And when I started kind of asking myself, okay, well, how would she pull it off? Especially, you know, today's day and age of social media, everything's so connected, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seemed pretty obvious that I would have to set it in the past. And once I decided that, I thought about my hometown and kind of these stories that I had grown up with from the 80s during the best of devaluation. And it felt like, you know, Laredo being a border town is kind of like this perfect example of duality. You know, the yeah. fact that it's it's very it's it's American and it's Mexican, it's both, it's neither. And so it felt kind of like metaphorically the yeah. perfect place for Lore to be. And it worked from kind of every logistical standpoint as well. So once I kind of had the place, the time she just kind of was born. She, she was, um, she just was so vivid and whole to me from the start. So her sections that you read in the book, very little really was changed from the first draft. Whereas Cassie went through like 30 different iterations. That's Um, so interesting. Yeah. I love that you could hear her. Yeah, she just started telling you her secrets. Yeah, she did. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that you could hear her in your mind. She clearly came through. (laughs) She did, yeah. (laughs) She was pretty relentless. Oh, I love that. Um, So there is a strong theme about the power of story in this book. Mm -hmm. And it starts on page one when Cassie's mom asks her third grade students to remember who writes the history books and what they have to gain by you believing them. This is also the angle that Cassie uses when she approaches Lore, that she will capture the full picture in a way previous reporters, you know, hadn't done so. So tell us why, you know, you wanted to explore the the, the power dynamics in storytelling, because that really interested us. Yeah. So I think there are two parts to that answer. So the first is, you know, from the true crime perspective. I have always sort of been very interested in crime stories, like, you know, even as a kid reading sort of mystery books, Nancy Drew's and, you know, like Fear Street and, you know, Patricia Cornwell once I was in high school. And um, and then it kind of from there, my interest in literary fiction grew. And I think now I tend to read a pretty broad range of books, but I, I always seem to come back to crime stories in some way as being kind of like a narrative engine for for a book. Um, and at some point a few years back, I started, you know, watching more true crime as well. I think kind of, you know, when Serial came onto the scene and um, and I felt like at that point, true crime sort of exploded in a way that it, at least to me, yeah. I was not aware of before. You've got the prestige docuseries and all the podcasts. 
And I got really into it, but also started kind of interrogating why I was into it. You know, like, why was I constantly drawn to stories about women who are hurt or killed or in danger? It's one of those things where once you start asking yourself questions, you know, the next question follows. And so the next question was sort of like, well, like, why is all of true crime about women? And why are all the women white women? And why are they all young? And, you know, and obviously there are exceptions to the rule. But, you know, once you start kind of noticing the similarities and and kind of recognizing like the true crime genre as still primarily being, you know, entertainment and, you know, being a for-profit sort of situation and yeah. and realizing that, you know, there is constantly a narrative bias to, you know, true crime that's being told in different ways. I started, you know, sort of looking up, like, I wrote a piece for Catapult recently. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I'll kind of reiterate a couple yeah. of things yeah. in there. I started um, sort of looking up statistics and as far as like, well, how often are women murder victims, you know, for example? And so, and I was really surprised to find out that 80% of homicide victims in the U.S. are male, but of the 20% of homicide victims that are women, they tend to be killed by people that they know, like almost in almost every circumstance. But even then, you know, when you, once you break that up, it's the, you know, the, the incidence of homicide against, you know, black women and trans women is like so disproportionate compared to their percent in the population. And yet these are not the stories that are being told. And these are not the women who are being sympathized with the way that white women tend to be sympathized with in true crime. So I just became really interested in kind of yeah, the narrative bias in true crime storytelling. And so I wanted to play with the idea of that sort of power dynamic, you know, and use Cassie as a white woman who wants to tell a different kind of story and Lore as a Mexican-American woman who's the subject of the story. And I wanted to, A, play with the idea of, okay, well, what happens when this outsider comes in and she looks at this city that is primarily Mexican-American? And so much of that you know, so much of the culture is sort of embedded in Lore's story as well. And I was interested in kind of like, what would an outsider be able to see and correctly perceive about it versus what would she make assumptions about? But then also give Lore the ultimate power in the storytelling, because she is the only one who knows what happened. And of course, even then, she doesn't know everything, right? So I wanted to kind of get at the idea that, that no matter how much we think we know about a crime that is investigated and put on display for all of us to consume, there's always more that only the people involved know. And even then there's probably some Bias greater layer and, yes. that even they don't have access to. Yeah. I think I forgot the second part of that. Answer, but, <laughs> but, no. Yeah. I'll pause there. Yeah. No. I mean, I think those are all fascinating questions. And like you said, once you start asking them the questions just keep coming. It's, yeah. And those are our favorite subjects, by the way, like the rabbit holes that we go down when you start. Because sometimes you just don't, you just gloss over it. You're like, oh, I liked cereal. Oh, I, you know, I like Dateline. Mm-hmm. No, that Dateline's too gory for me. You know, you, you think yeah. you're thinking about it, right? Like, this is what I like and this is what I don't like. But really, what are you? What is appealing to you? What is, um, mm-hmm. you know, intriguing to you there? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I should recommend a true crime podcast, but I listened to Long Island serial killer Lisk, uh-huh. and it was a serial killer that pretty much went uninvestigated for a long time. And they are saying exactly what, why I'm bringing it up is they're saying what you mm-hmm. said, which was it was because the women, the victims of the serial mm-hmm. killer were primarily not white, and mm-hmm. some of them were 
uh, allegedly sex workers. And so Mm -hmm. their womanhood by race and by, you know, profession class were just not as as appealing to this narrative of what it means to be in like interesting true crime. It's, yeah. It really blew my mind just listening to that whole aspect of it. It wasn't even for me, that was really what it was about. Like, let's investigate these women and our biases against them and why. Because they still talk to like their these people still have mothers. These people yeah. still have people who love them. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's heartbreaking. That's what's important. And that's like why we should care about people. Yes, I love that. I'll have to listen to that. Because yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think that that, you know, like Cassie, I think when true crime is done well, you know, it serves so much good, you know, and that's why I continue to be drawn to crime stories, because I think that they, they offer us a lens to kind of explore, you know, the darker parts of like individual human psychology, but also, you know, these larger systemic injustices, you know, yeah. 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 And I think I think it has a really important role in our culture, but it's just like there's such a broad spectrum of mm-hmm. it, right? Yes, there is. And I think though we benefit from that spectrum. Like yeah. Cassie telling a story mm-hmm. that has already been told, and I think it's the the anniversary of uh the death mm-hmm. in the book. And you could think, is there anything else to uncover? But a different perspective. Same with the Long Island serial killer. It had been done and lots of people had fictionalized it and other people had reported on it, but this was a whole different angle, really focusing on the women and why we yeah. really didn't folk care, seem to care about them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So more stories. That's always our. Yes. <laughs> the, the more stories <laughs> of the same thing. That's okay. Um, so another one of the themes that you really press on in this book um, very well is the mother-daughter relationships, um, mm-hmm. something we love to unpack and talk about. And you came at this kind of fraught topic from two angles. We know that Cassie's mother looms large in her life. Um, I think it's the the very first sentence of this book is, by the time I read about Lore Rivera, my mother had been dead for a dozen years, dead but not gone. She was like my shadow, angling dark and long in the right light, inescapable and untouchable. And so Cassie's intrigue is heightened by the fact that Lore is a mother and Mm -hmm. she's talking to her fiance Duke again in early pages. And she says, you mentioned this also earlier, but reading from the book, imagine how much effort it took to pull that off and why, you know, what makes a woman, a mom do something like that? Not that mothers always put their children first, I should know, or even that they should, but this is something else, Cassie says. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you had, we've already talked about the power of storytelling, true crime. You had so much in this book. You didn't have to really go into this idea of mothers and daughters and and all of that that brings up. Why did you want to also explore that theme in this book? Yeah. So I became a mother twice over while working on this book. <laughs> I started it when I first found out I was pregnant with my daughter and then I finished the first draft just before she turned a year old, and I edited it right up until I had my son uh, a couple years later. So, you know, it was a lot of drafting, a lot of editing. And so I think I knew from the start that I I wanted Lore to be a mom because of of how much that would complicate things for her. Um, And I knew that I wanted Cassie to have a complicated background with her own mother because, again, I knew that I wanted the women to sort of be mirrors for each other in, in different ways. And I did want to come at it from both the child side as well as the mother side. But I think I didn't expect for that theme to go um, as deep as it ended up becoming. Um, You know, I think 
working on the book during nap times when my daughter was first born to then editing it, you know, during the pandemic with two kids. Motherhood became just really a central topic for me to be obviously both living, but then uh, like thinking about a lot in the last few years. And I think that one of the really, you know, sort of fraught uh, misconceptions or I guess mythologies about motherhood is this idea of like, always putting the kids first, right? And that it's considered a good thing in our society for a mother to be selfless in this way, you know, to to always be putting her family first. Like that is sort of the number one yeah. marker of what I think the it's U.S. It's a mandate. Is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of like push my thumb on that from like two different angles of, you know, Cassie's mother letting her down in in this really heartbreaking way. And then Lore making choices that really don't take her sons into account at all. You know, so this idea that she can love her children, that but both mothers in the book can love their children with all of their hearts. They could be willing to die for their kids. And yet there is a part of them that the children can't fulfill, right? And that they can only get from whether it's other relationships or a career or both in different ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to just kind of look at what happens when a mother, you know, doesn't put her kids first all the time and yet still very deeply loves them. Right. Um, you know, how does that change or, you know, influence our conceptions of what it means to be like a good mom or a bad mom? Is Lore a bad mom because she did what she did? You know, I think that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, and and same for Cassie's mom, you know. Yeah. Uh, what what makes a good mother or a bad mother? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you just said it so well. It it has nothing to do with the children, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's not their realm, this romantic realm or or right. uh, or even a career for any woman. Um it's just not the realm for the children to fulfill and yet it has real repercussions on them. And so what do you do when those needs collide? Mm-hmm. And Yeah. and can you always choose the children first? And where does that leave the mother? But usually a shell of yeah. a person yes. is <laughs> in reality. Mm-hmm. So yes. this is a theme that you are not, as you've already said, you're living it as well. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not just explored in your fiction, but I read so many of your essays on motherhood that really took my breath away. Um, one particular one, I think it just came out a few days ago um, in time about mm-hmm. losing yourself to motherhood. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a paragraph that I really want to read. It's just, it really took my breath away, like I said. Pregnancy and birthing have always had a way of obliterating the self, shattering any previous understanding of who we are. Many of us emerge with some combination of shifted bones, dysfunctional organs, stitches and scars, months of bleeding and leaking, all of which can change our relationship with physicality, robbing us of previous forms of release and connection. Oh boy, you know, when you... Boil it down to the essence, like the physicality of it. It's you don't even have to go there as far as like existential, which is where I went. It was existential drama and dilemma. But when you put it on a physical level, it's so hard to deny. And it's not just pregnancy and childbirth, even though that sentence is breathtaking. Motherhood is such a physical experience. Mm-hmm. You know, your baby has to be carried, like attached mm-hmm. to you, fastened to you in some, you know, whether it's, we sit there again, same thing with the true crime. We sit there and think like, do I want to Bjorn or do I want to rap? Or, <laughs> and you think you're making choices, but you're not thinking about the fact that this being has to be attached to you attached because it can't walk. 
it can't function on its own in any way for, you know, for a year, even after you've yeah. maybe carried it and, and birthed this child. Mm-hmm. So even beyond that, it's motherhood. And then forget it. If you have more than one, mm-hmm. you, you know, the, for the mother, that child may now be running and walking, but the mother can often be right back where she was a year mm-hmm. ago. So that really resonated with me. And for me, I don't know. I just, I, so much of it. I, when I became a mother, it wasn't even just about the physicality. It was, I felt like I was someone mm-hmm. different and I was something else. I was transportation. Yeah. I was food. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was everything. And that was mm-hmm. very hard for me to reconcile. And I think mm-hmm. every woman has a different journey to reconciling their old self and their new self, but no one escapes it. You, you just yeah. can't. You just can't. Yeah. Um, and it's just something I'm I'm endlessly fascinated with. I love that you are speaking about it candidly and authentically. Is that something that's important to you to get it out or you want your story to be told so other people – why do you share those stories? I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I think it's less about me specifically. Um, like I always have this sort of like cringy feeling when I sit down to write an essay of like, is this completely self-indulgent? Like I have so much privilege really, you know, who am I to be complaining about these things? But then, you know, I think that we are so, you know, sort of like indoctrinated to not complain about motherhood as if we're complaining about these really minor things. When in fact, like you said, we're complaining about a transformation into an entirely different thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> this is not a petty complaint. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. a petty complaint. And especially like these last couple of years that have been like a pretty horrific time for mothers in particular. Um, and so I think that, you know, something will happen like in the news and I'll just get so angry and um, and it just feels like um, like now is the time, you know, and I'm, I'm friends and or friendly with a lot of, um, moms who are doing, you know, similar things in terms of just really um, being very brutally honest about what this experience is like and, and how it connects to um, like the culture in larger ways to where it's not just like I'm telling my own personal story, but also like, let's talk about, you know, what the U.S. is not doing, you know, mm-hmm, like, let's yeah. like, can these stories make a difference? Ultimately, I don't know, which is depressing, yeah. you know, um, but it does feel more important than ever, I think, in these last couple of years to be for as many of us as possible I think to be telling these stories because there's there's such a romantic cloak over the idea Mm, of motherhood you know it's like I remember um when I had my daughter and she was my first my first child and I remember like being in her room at three in the morning and like rocking her like you know bouncing her standing up in front of her crib for an hour and I would just be counting in my head. I would tell myself five more minutes and I would count to 300 and then I would look at her and she was still awake. I was like, another, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another 300. And at one point I looked, you know, if we had the nightlight on and I looked at the wall and I saw my shadow of like, and it was the shadow of like this mother figure holding this bundle. And it was so um, like this, this idealized version of what mm-hmm. I was experiencing in that moment. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was like the shadow on the wall. It was beautiful. Right. But the, the me holding the baby right. was a mess. Right. And yeah. yeah, if and you I look just, at the outline, the outline's beautiful. But then you look yeah. at, at the, the details and it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, for so long, there's sort of been this, um, yeah, like this unspoken mandate of, you know, don't, if you complain about motherhood, that must mean you don't love your kids. And yeah. if you don't love your kids, then you're the worst kind of human being, right? Mm-hmm. And so therefore it becomes, if you complain about motherhood, you're the worst kind of human being. You right. don't deserve and so um, I think that it's it's so important to continue kind of breaking that down, you know, um, 
like one story at a time, I guess, you know, that's what it takes. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. I mean, that's what, like we were saying earlier, more stories, please. I mean, because everyone's motherhood experience is not the same either. So, you know, I I agree with you. And I does sometimes feel like, will it make a difference? We don't Mm -hmm. know, but we're going to keep having the conversation and and hopefully hear more of the stories. And well, it does. Yeah, it does make a difference in that even in that just that more people are saying things that yeah. people you couldn't say. I mean, I I was writing about this stuff 10 years ago and I, dismissed as a mommy blogger, right? As we talked <laughs> about that with Kate Bear um, and how that has even evolved. And That's so true. Yeah. And so that was dismissed. And now it's not dismissive. Now these are like real think pieces. These are real, mm-hmm. um, you know, people want this uh, to hear more stories. But there is still this idea that if you complain that you know that that something there's something wrong with you as opposed to that this is just the way it is and why yes. do we have to wash over the hard parts yes there's lots of joy yes there's so much reward yes there's so much wonderfulness mm-hmm. and also can we talk about what it's like to function on no sleep and mm-hmm. frustration and having a child that does not meet any of the criteria and what to expect when you're expecting, right? Yeah. So that's all. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to return him. I don't want to take him back. Right. <laughs> I just want to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's almost as though, you know, the idea of mothers being able to say that feels dangerous to yeah. society yeah. in a lot of ways, you know, because mm-hmm. it kind of, it does kind of endanger the status quo because it means that we're asking for something, right? Mm. We're demanding something. We're not just sitting there and shutting up with our babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that's, I think, unsettling to right. a large percentage of the population. Yeah. yeah. Who only want us, it, our needs should be replaced by the kids' needs. We can't add more needs. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as a culture, we're not going to meet the kids' needs either. Like, that's on oh, you. Oh, no. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I do want to shift gears a little bit to your mm-hmm. sort of path to publication. And in your acknowledgments, you talk about finding your voice as a writer and how your particular MFA program helped you do that. Can you share a little bit about that experience for our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so like Lore, I grew up in Laredo. And so when I was growing up, the city was like 99% Mexican, you know, so I grew up surrounded by, you know, people who would, you know, we all kind of, we had similar we just, we obviously were very culturally similar. And of course there, you know, Laredo is a very, um, there are dramatic differences in wealth in the city. There's a huge divide between like wealthy Laredoans and poor Laredoans. There's a really high rate of poverty in Laredo. So I don't want to like gloss over and make it this idealized little bubble because we're all the same because it wasn't like that Mm -hmm. at all. But it was, I think the one thing about it was that I never grew up feeling like a minority. Mm. You know, I never grew up feeling marginalized or othered because this was just who we were. And, you know, and everybody was very proud of of our culture. But in that entire time that I was there for, you know, 17 years before leaving for college, like I literally read one book by a Latina author. And that was Sandra Cisneros um, in seventh grade, you know, The House uh-huh. on Mango Street. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember reading it and she was using Spanish and Spanglish. And I was like, God, you can do that? Yeah. You know, like this could be in a book. And I remember thinking like, well, that's, well, it can't be real literature then, you know, like, because you can't, you can't use Spanish in like literature with a capital L. <laughs> and um, so it just like, it, even being 
completely the the majority, not marginalized at all. It was kind of like, you know, there was still this idea of what could and couldn't be done in fiction. And so um, I... I was, you know, I was always writing stories as a kid and, in, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, it was constant. Um, but in the stories, like, nobody had last names. Like, the cities were very unspecific. They were sort of these big cities. I'd never even been to a bigger city than San Antonio, you know. Um, and so they were these really, like, vague stories that had nothing to do with anything I knew personally because I, I felt like I didn't know how to represent um the people that I knew, the place that I knew, I felt like there was not that place for us in fiction. And, and that didn't mean that I didn't think we were inherently worthy or valuable because I did. Right. So it was this weird conflict. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't until the MFA program, and I think, you know, so at that point in college was when I started to become exposed to more work by, you know, Latino authors that sort of like blew my mind wide open as far as, you know, what could be done and what that literature could look like. And then reading more Texas authors as well. So kind of falling in love with books that had a really strong sense of place and a really strong specificity of voice and character and family and seeing how much those aspects um, like moved me as a reader. And I was like, oh, like, I want to try to do that. You know, like Texas, this is kind of a fascinating place, you know, and Laredo is, is a fascinating place. You know, once I stepped outside of it for college, I, I sort of, for the first time was like, being on the border is kind of interesting, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a different way of life than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, being in the MFA program, you know, working, you know, we were sort of, I worked on, on a lot of short stories there. And so it kind of um, gave me a lot of opportunities to explore writing place and voice in a way and character in a way that I, I really hadn't before then. And that was, um, that was really when I kind of like discovered this, it was this sense of like, oh, like this is what it's supposed to feel like. And this is what it's supposed to, you know, and it's not to say that all the stories were great or even good, but it was like this um, really kind of formative time yeah. of experimenting mm -hmm. with yeah. those aspects of my work and my voice as a writer. And I feel like, you know, after that, there was sort of never any going back to writing these, you know, sort of bland universal stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And did that come from you? Was that encouraged by um, maybe your teachers or or was it a combination of just the exposure to those stories? I think it was more, yeah, the exposure to the stories. Um, you know, I think that I, I think I, I've got pretty good feedback on this, on the work, you know, in workshops. Um, also, you know, got definitely some critical feedback as well. Yeah. Some of them. But, um, but yeah, I think having that sort of support and encouragement, like, you know, once, once the collection was sort of coming together as a whole, my thesis advisors were really encouraging and supportive and they seemed to feel like like it could actually like be a, a real collection one day. And so I think having that having that kind of support and encouragement um, was really important to me at that time, you know, because yeah. it, it did kind of say like, OK, I'm on the right track when it comes to this style, I guess, I guess or this voice. This mm -hmm. is what I want to put out there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. exposure is really a huge barrier because you don't even know that you don't realize mm -hmm. how it, everything is dominated by one type of writer until you see right. others and you're like, yeah. Oh yeah, look at this. I can do that. Yeah. That I can relate to that. That's, and I can do that too. Um, right. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about something else in your acknowledgements. We really 
Um, we really dug deep in your acknowledgments. They were so good. <laughs> I mean, it's like the first thing I read every time, but yours were- It is mine too now. Yeah, yeah yours were exceptional. Um, you also wrote, and I won't say too much, I'll let you share it if, if you feel comfortable. Um, you shared a story about meeting your now husband on a plane as a 20-year-old aspiring writer and then reconnecting with him later. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like? <laughs> yeah, Um so I was I studied abroad in Melbourne, Australia, my junior year of college. And um, when I was flying home that December, there was a guy sitting next to me in my aisle. They, he was at the window seat. There was nobody in the middle, and I was on the aisle. And you know, I thought he was really attractive. Like he had you know great smile and dimples. I had a boyfriend. <laughs> I was feeling like very fickle, I guess. Mm. But um, <laughs> we ended up talking for the entire 14 hours. Um, you know, it was one of those things where like the flight oh attendants God. kept coming up and being like, they're trying to sleep. Can you just keep it down? And there, was one <laughs> flight attendant. <laughs> there was one flight attendant that was like, did you all know each other before? And we were like, no. And he was like, this is going to go somewhere. You wait. This is going to go somewhere. And um, like by the end of the flight, we were so comfortable. This is so like wild now, but it's one of those things that I think you can only happen when you're 20. But um, we were so comfortable that we, we were like, okay, we should try to get some sleep. We're going to land in 30 minutes. Let's try to rest. And we both put our legs up on the middle seat. So like, you know, we had just met and like our legs were touching. <laughs> like I think he had like his hands on my ankles, like, you know, very intimate. Mm-hmm. And so after that, like we exchanged like emails and MSN handles. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so we, he was flying to Brazil to meet some friends. He was six years older than I was and his friend was a DJ. And so he was going to go hang out there with him for, I think, a month or so, the way Australians do. And so, yeah, we kept in touch and then we ended up seeing each other for one night, eight months later, um, a friend and I went back to Australia um, just on a trip. And um, Adrian, my husband, he was in Sydney. And so uh, we were going to be there for three nights. And we kind of were messaging back and forth. And it fell through the first night, fell through the second night. And then finally, the third night, um, he ended up coming to my hotel lobby. And my friend, who was younger than I was, younger than I am, and she was very cautious. She was like, because Adrian kept saying, well, just come back to my house. You know, it's really close. And my friend was like, don't go. Like, don't want you to get killed. Like, don't go. She watches too much true crime, probably. True crime, yes. Yeah, she didn't want me to get murdered. So so we ended up just staying in the hotel lobby. And, like, that was where we had, like, our first kiss on the couch there. And um, came back home and um, bought webcams. We took it to the next level. And oh we bought webcams goodness. for our computer. Yeah, that's serious. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we talked all the time. But then it was kind of um, – it was like, well, where – you know, where is this going? So I think six months or so it passed and, um, and, you know, there was never any talk about us having like a real, like, you know, we weren't ex- like, we weren't in a relationship. We were just, we didn't know what we were. Um, and there was never any talk of, you know, one of us moving to see the other, like it was crazy, but it was like this sense of like, I had fallen really hard for him and I didn't, you know, I wanted it to go somewhere. And, um, one night my roommate's wanted to go downtown and, um, you know, hit a few bars in Austin. And so I told him I couldn't talk because of that. And, uh, and I think I offered to stay or something and, and he was like, no, no, you should go. And, and I said, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll meet somebody, you know, down there. And he was like, well, you know, if that's what you want to do, I don't want to hold you back. I was like, but I want you to want to hold me back. That's the whole point. You know? <laughs> that's why I said that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly why I said that. So I, I ended up meeting somebody that night and, um, came and yeah, uh, fast forward two years, I think. And I ended up marrying the guy I met that night. Um, Adrian, 
my now husband, he started dating somebody around the same time. And so we both had these long-term relationships. Um, I, I think it was about like six or seven years in total for both of us. Um, and then they both, so we reconnected via a Facebook message like years later. And then both of our relationships ended up falling apart like pretty much at the same time, which happened to coincide with when I was going back to Australia oh. to be the godmother of a friend's baby who had just been born. And so at that point, Adrian was like, well, can I come down to Melbourne to see you? And so um, I said yes. And so he came from Sydney to Melbourne and we spent some time together. And then um, after that, you know, came back home and my once my divorce was finalized, we met in Hawaii, which was like halfway between us. We spent a week there and then he came back to Texas to meet my family and friends. And that was in 2012. And yeah, we've been together ever since. We did long distance mm-hmm. for two years. He moved here in 2014 and we got engaged and married like within a couple of months. Ugh. And yeah. That's, what I love this story. story. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Like how your lives can go in such different directions and still like we're we're intersecting yeah this really leads well into our next question Corinne which we don't (laughs) often have a lead in for but this story really speaks to our astrology loving hearts because somehow you were meant to be this romance written in the stars so we do ask all our authors what's your sign and do you relate to it and if you don't Uh, know much about it we'll fill it in (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm a Scorpio. And, oh. and I do, I think that on the surface, you know, Scorpios are supposed to be very sort of dark and broody and mysterious. And, and I think on the surface, that's not probably how I come off, but I think like internally, like, I think that does kind of capture my soul. Yeah. A little bit. yeah. And I think definitely, uh, probably comes out in my writing, uh, you know, as mm-hmm. you see in the book. Yeah. 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 Oh, Scorpios are popping up all over my life in never my younger life and now in I, maybe it's also in my motherhood life I seem to really relate to the way Scorpios express motherhood but some words for Scorpios focused determined strong enigmatic independent charismatic intense emotionally deep that sounds like you yes. right even just from this right <laughs> maybe reading yeah. your book and then now talking to you it feels like a, a pretty accurate yeah, I've definitely always felt a, a connection with the Scorpio vibes. Yeah, we love that. We love that. <laughs> so we also want to ask you, what are you loving right now? Um, are there any shows or movies or books um, that you are just wanting to tell everybody about? You know, those things like when you watch it and you read it or you're like, please, everyone watch this and let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so the last sort of month or so has been pretty um you know, hectic sort of leading up to publication. So I feel like there's a lot that I'm not doing for fun. Um, but I'm watching the second season of The Flight Attendant and really enjoying that. Yes. I really like the first one. Really down for like all the Hitchcock vibes. And then book-wise, um, I am reading a couple of advanced reading copies that I definitely want to shout about. Um, one is by um, Tracy Lian is I think how you pronounce her last name. Um, it's called All That's Left Unsaid. Mm. Um, it'll be out in September and it's sort of like a literary crime, I guess, but sort of really, a, okay, well, it's about, it's about a, a boy, a 17 year old, um, Vietnamese Australian boy who is brutally murdered in a restaurant with 17 witnesses, but nobody is talking. And so his sister, who's a couple of years older, 
wants to find out what happened to him and why nobody's talking. And the book is told from her perspective, but then also the perspectives of several of the witnesses, um, her parents at the end. And it's like, it is just beautifully done. It's like this tapestry that comes together um, about this really specific refugee community in Australia and how displacement from one's own country, you know, followed by this kind of like attempted assimilation, but really like not really because they're so held at a distance, like how all of that kind of coincides with with violence, with crime, with drug use, with injustice. Um, and it's just beautifully done. And like the, the portrait of this family is incredible. Um, so that's one. And then I'm reading um, the advanced reading copy of Alice in Wisdom's next book, oh. The Burning Season. Mm-hmm. And I think she was on the podcast, right? Yes. She was, uh-huh. yes. And yes. we're hoping to have her back too. So yeah. Yes. And I am just loving it. It is like so hypnotic and eerie and kind of like approaches the idea of cults from um, a different angle, more like religious fanaticism this time. And um, it, it is, it's brilliant. It's beautifully done and I'm loving it. Um, so nice. that will be out, I think, in July. And then um, another one that I finished recently that I really loved was Caroline Frost's uh, The Shadows of Pecan Hollow. And um, that's she's another Texas writer. And um, it's about a woman who is she's technically sort of abducted. She's a runaway who's abducted when she's 13 and she becomes partners in crime with this very charismatic older man. And they become known as, I think, the the Texaco twosome um, (laughs) for armed robberies of Uh Texacos. And then it kind of goes forward 20 years. Um, now she has a daughter. She's living a quiet life. And this man who has been in prison enters back into her life. And it is um, like, it's one of those books that you do not want to put down. And it's also just so beautifully written. Um, so I, I really love that one. And I'm shouting about that one a lot. <laughs> nice. Those sound fantastic. I'm, I'm going to put those on my list now. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, well, well, more than you'll, you'll ever know is out now. So thank yes. you so much for joining us. We've loved yes. talking to you thank about you. this, yeah, this book and all the themes there. You've really hit on all of our favorites. You did. Oh, thank you guys so much. Like it's You all read it so deeply and came with amazing questions. It was so fun talking. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.